Uh, now, as I was preparing this week, I thought I could start this sermon on uh, the doctrine of sin, the God who is rejected in the usual way. And the usual way would be to kind of put the existential question out there of kind of what is wrong with the world and then kind of catalogue all the dictators and the disasters and the despots of the world um, and kind of paint a picture of what's wrong with the world out there. I could start it the usual way. But I thought, I actually don't need to go outside these four walls to convince you that there is a lot that is wrong with the world. Do I? We don't need to go outside these worlds, these walls to realise that our world is a broken, a fractured, a traumatic place, a difficult place. In this room, there are people who are made in the image of God who have experienced firsthand the the tragedy of life in a broken world. We are a people who are lonely. Our life plans to find a partner, to get married, to have children, they haven't panned out the way that we'd always hoped and dreamed. I mean, but even for some of us, to be married is a distant dream. We'd be happy with just some friends. Or some family and friends who are not too far away. They're not in another city, in another country, on the other side of an ocean. But we're also people who are suffering. We're hurting. We've lost loved ones. We've got bad news from the doctor. Our bodies and our minds and our hearts, they are broken. And we experience pain day in and day out. And we've been told that there is nothing to do but get on with life. It's not going to get any better. In this room, we are people who are lost. Some of us stand before life bewildered by the decisions before us and kind of paralysed and unable to work out which way forward, not knowing which way to turn. There are people here who are broken because others have abused them, have taken advantage of them. And so when we go, what's wrong with the world? We don't have to go out there to see that there is a lot wrong with the world. What's wrong with the world? Well, the Times newspaper in London put this question around the turn of the century to a group of prominent people, people, writers, politicians, uh, business leaders, intellectuals. What's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton, as you saw already, the famous writer and Christian of the early 20th century, he responded with astonishing honesty. What's wrong with the world today? Dear sir, I am. I am. We, humanity, are what's wrong with the world. According to the Bible, we broke it, we continue to break it, and despite our best efforts of science and politics and sport, we can't fix it either. Uh, Now, just to be clear, I'm not saying that you are personally the cause of your own pain, Uh, The Bible is clear that we can't draw such a linear connection, a straight line between our sin and our suffering. Uh, But what Chesterton is saying is right, that we, humanity, are what is wrong with the world. We are the problem with the world because of sin. We have all sinned. We have all messed everything up. And that's the great problem of the Bible. The reason Jesus came and died the reason that God entered into this world in the, in, the, in the form of his son and that he put him to death on a cross to pay the penalty for something, it was because of sin. Because we are a sinful and rebellious people. 
Now, what is sin? You might be wondering what, you know, that's a pretty jargony Christian word. We talk about it a bit. What is it? Uh, well, some people might think that sin is just really, really bad stuff, the wicked and evil stuff, the stuff that kind of gets you locked up in jail. Is that what sin is? But sometimes we even uh, think that sin might be something a little bit fun. It's something that's so bad that it's good. Uh, you know, maybe it's something you name a pizza after or an ice cream or a dessert. Now, we have a cookbook at home. Uh, it's a pretty dodgy uh, picture there, but uh, this cookbook is called Wicked. Sinful recipes from your favourite chefs. Something that's so bad for you that it's good. Now, when we talk about sin in the Bible, uh, the word for sin in the Bible, it simply means missing the mark. The Greek word used for sin in the New Testament, it's actually used in kind of in the context originally for kind of throwing a javelin. And in the first century, the Greeks, they were very into their sport. And if you threw your javelin and it fell short of the mark, it was considered a sin. It fell short. It fell short of being perfect in whatever way you were talking about. It, it, was, it might be breaking a rule, it might be failing to achieve a certain standard, it might be by making a mistake, that was a sin. And so that cookbook, if that was in the first century, it would be a flop because it would be a book of a collection of desserts that really don't make the grade. A book of second-rate desserts, not up to scratch, a book of failed desserts. Right, but sin is not just failing to measure up or breaking an arbitrary rule. We see in the Bible, and we'll see it in Genesis chapter 3, at its heart, sin is a rejection of God, is a rejection of the Creator, the one who has the right to rule over us. And that is what makes sin so serious. Sin is where we take God, the Creator of the world, and we take Him off the throne, and we seat ourselves on the throne, choosing to run things our own way and choosing to ignore Him. Sin is an act of treason. And sin, it ruins everything. Sin is what is wrong with the world. What is wrong with the world? I am. Because I sin. Uh, Now, if you were here last week, you'll remember that God made the world, uh, the God who creates, and when he made it, it was good. It was actually very good. When he made it, it was perfect. Now, the Bible story doesn't go very far along. It's only until the third chapter uh, when things kind of go all pear-shaped. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the the, the wheels fall off and the whole world is broken. And it's broken and corrupted because of sin. And so, in Genesis chapter 3, we're going to look at the way that the the man and the woman behave and and it's going to be kind of instantly familiar to us. It's going to be very familiar to us because our nature comes from these people. We are very much like them. And so when we see what they're doing, we'll recognize it because we do it ourselves. So Genesis chapter 3 verse 1, it'd be great if you could have it open. Uh, Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say? Now, firstly, why is he speaking to the woman? Why is the serpent speaking to her? You see, when God made the world, there was, a, there was an order in creation. Men and women were made in, equally in the image of God and they were placed over the creation. But what we have here is we have a, a creature addressing the people who will then address God. And so you see there's an inversion. As sin emerges, it, it, the first thing it does is it distorts the created order. Humanity aren't ruling the creation under God. They are being ruled and directed 
by the creation in opposition to God. And the serpent, verse 1, he said to the woman, verse 1, did God really say you must not eat from the tree, from the fruit, you must not eat of the fruit of any tree in the garden? Now what Satan is doing here is he's, he's questioning. What did God actually say? He's questioning God's word and he's, he's testing the woman to doubt God's word. Now, we, we know from Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, that, that God, he commanded man, he said, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. And they should know that that's what God has said, but, but Satan's question, it causes them to doubt God's word. It places a seed of doubt. Whether Did God really say that? And, verse, and the second challenge comes in verse 4. The snake says to the woman, verse 4, you will not certainly die. So the first thing is the doubt. The second thing he does is he denies. The serpent says, it's not true. You won't die. God's lying to you. The third thing he does is distrust. Distrusting God himself, verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He's distrusting God there. That's, that's the threefold strategy there of Satan. Uh, first, the doubt. Did God really say? Then deny? Well, God's lying. Nothing's actually going to happen. And then third, distrust. Oh, God's just a killjoy. He's, he's holding something back. He, he's cramping your style. He, he, doesn't want, he doesn't think that you can handle it. He doesn't want you to be like him. Doubt, deny, distrust. And we hear this all the time, don't we? We hear, well, does the Bible really say that's a sin? And if it does, it's, it's pretty old-fashioned. Like, no one really thinks that these days, do they? I mean, can you even trust that the Bible is reliable? And then we hear, well, surely God wouldn't actually mind if you did it. I mean, he's running the universe. He's got more important things to worry about than what you do behind closed doors. It's not like it's going to hurt anyone. And then finally... Well, God like that, he's just a monster. What a restrictive view of life. I mean, the sooner we do away with ideas like that, the better we'll be as a society. Doubt, deny, distrust. I mean, we hear these echoes around us all the time, don't we? We hear it all the time. But back to Genesis chapter 3, what happened? Verse 6, verse 6. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. You see, confronted with the choice to, to eat or resist, to sin or to refrain, the, 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 the people that God have made, they're deceived by appearances, deceived by what it looks like. When they look at sin, they are deceived to think that it is... It, it looks good for food. This, this thing, it's nourishing for me. It's good for me. I'll enjoy it. See, it's pleasing to the eye. It's, it looks attractive. It's enticing. It's desirable for gaining wisdom. I'll be enlightened. I'll be better off if I do this. Once we doubt, once we deny, once we distrust God and his word, then defying him becomes very attractive. It's enticing. 
It seems enlightening. It seems like we'll be better off if we do it. Well, what comes of it? What comes of it? Well, they eat the fruit and they share some together in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. You see the effects of their disobedience to God, they, they begin to be, they feel them immediately. They feel exposed. They feel ashamed. But that's, that's just the beginning. See, their rebellion against God, their decision to doubt and to not deny and distrust Him and His Word, what it does is it breaks the whole creation. Immediately, the, the man and the woman, they feel guilt and shame. And from this point on, they'll experience suffering and toil and hardship and pain. And then there'll be hostility between the man and the woman and hostility between the people and the creation. And after this miserable and difficult life that now lies out before them, death will consume it all. Toil, pain, hardship, brokenness, conflict, and then death. That is life in our world. So what is wrong with the world today? What is wrong with the world? Well, humanity sinned. We all sinned. God created us in his image. He breathed breathed life into us. He put us in charge of his creation to care for it as the pinnacle of everything that he has made. He has provided for us, but then we, we rebel against our creator. We have doubted him. We have denied him. We have distrusted him and his word. We have given in to the devil's lies and we've given up on following his commands. We've shoved him off the throne and we take our seat in his place. We take our seat in his place. Now this is terribly uncomfortable for you to hear and for me to, to preach to you, which is why it's increasingly popular for churches to avoid talking about sin at all. The only sin is to talk about sin or to make people feel like they have sinned. That's the only sin that's left for some people. Or people are tempted to twist sin into something else, like a lack of self-belief or a failure to realise your potential. And so we can go places and they'll tell you that if we just look inside ourselves and realise what is possible, if we, if we trust in Jesus, then we'll be able to finally realise our full potential and God will set us free and we'll be able to overcome and achieve great victories if we only had enough faith to overcome our own lack of self-belief. Because that's really all sin is, is a lack of self-belief, a failure to achieve our potential. But if we think about sin as that and only that, then we'll miss the whole point of why Jesus came. If you take sin out of the gospel, well, Jesus' death on the cross for you, is it is cosmic child abuse. There is no point. Why would Jesus die if he didn't have to? Why would God send his son to lay down his life on a cross for you if that wasn't required, if sin wasn't serious? Sin isn't self-doubt. Sin isn't failing to live up to your potential. Sin is hostility, violence. It is rebellion against the God who made us. 
mean, much of the Old Testament, do you know what the defining image for sin is in the Old Testament? It's adultery. Adultery. And at the heart of adultery, it's not, it's not just the breaking of a rule, is it? The heart of adultery is, is not the breaking of a rule, it's the breaking of a relationship. It's the breaking of a relationship. It's a betrayal of a relationship. It's turning your back on the one who has loved you and seeking lesser loves. And so sin is not failing to achieve and sin is not funny or trivial. It's not a little bit of naughtiness, kind of the spice of life. Sin is serious. It is the rejection of God and his rule. And so what is the result of sin? You see that we're kind of more than halfway through and now we're on to the second major point. What is the result of sin? Well, the Bible is clear that sin is universal. We all do it. Everyone rejects God's rule. Absolutely everyone. We are all guilty before God of sin. Now, whether we feel it or not, whether we think it's a big deal or not, we've all treated God in this way. Uh, In Paul's letter to the Romans, kind of the universality of sin is made clear. The first three chapters kind of, of, of the book of Romans, they really kind of cover off all the bases. It's kind of like this rap sheet in the court and we find that we're on, the, we're on the list of those who are charged, like everyone else who has set foot on this earth apart from Jesus. We have rebelled against our Creator. And Paul sums it up in Romans chapter 3 verse 9. Uh, Romans chapter 3 verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we, kind of that is Jewish people, have any advantage? Not at all. For we, have already been, for, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have all together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. You see, it started with Adam and Eve, but it has just continued on, continued on throughout all of history. Sin is universal. Sin is the human condition established by Adam in the garden and continued by all of us. The second result of sin is that we become God's enemies. We are, in our natural state, hostile to God, resistant to him and his word. Colossians chapter 1 says this, Once you are alienated from God and you were, you were enemies in your mind by your evil behavior. Hostiles. Enemies. Lives lived out of relationship with the creator. Lives lived in rebellion to him and his good rule. And thirdly, we are slaves we're entangled, we're entrapped and there is nothing we can do to free ourselves. And we see this in Ephesians chapter 2 which is my favourite chapter of the Bible. Um, it says this in Ephesians chapter 2, As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that is the devil. And then all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful flesh and following its desires and thoughts. You see, we're enslaved to sin. In Ephesians chapter 2, it tells us that we're kind of bound in this slavery to sin by this three-stranded cord. The world enslaves us. The devil and our own sinful flesh, all three bind us in our sin and we're in a hopeless place. 
We're dead in our transgressions and sins, Paul says. Now, you might be sitting there and you might be thinking, this is full on, kind of give me a break. I'm a good person. I've not done anything terrible. I do plenty of good. I'm a good friend. I'm a helpful neighbor. I, I give to charity. You know, I reckon at the end of the day, I can, I'll sit down and have a, have a beer with God and we'll, we'll work it out and he'll see that I'm okay. I'm certainly not a slave to the world or to the devil or to my own sinful flesh. I'm a good person. It can't be that bad. Well, let me tell you about a sailor. This guy, he's the pick of the bunch. He's the best of the crew. He works hard. He gets the job done. He scrubs the decks. He climbs the rigging. He does the dishes after dinner. He's perfect at his job on the ship. No one can fault him. He's reliable. He follows the captain's instructions to a T. And this sailor, he's a good bloke, he's a great mate, he treats his fellow crew members well, he's always lending a hand, he never gets into a fight or causes a fuss. There was even a medical emergency on this ship and this this guy was able to donate his blood to save a fellow crew member. He, He doesn't talk back, he doesn't put a foot out of line, he's just model crew member, model sailor. If you were ever to go out to sea, this is the guy you would want on your boat. This is the guy you want on your boat. The only problem is that this guy, this sailor, he crews on a pirate ship. All his good behaviour, all his best efforts, all of it just works to serve the cause of piracy. He is a fine and trustworthy and upstanding and honest and reliable and hard-working pirate. And that is our plight. Our best efforts, even our good works, they contribute to a world that is in rebellion against its creator. We're crewing on the wrong ship. Sin is universal and sin makes us enemies of God and sin has enslaved us. And this is what's wrong with the world. We are, as creatures, rebelling against our creator. We doubt his word. We deny what he, re- he really means what he said. And we distrust his goodness and so we've broken his good world. And because we've fractured this good world, we reap a harvest of brokenness back. We reap the harvest of pain and loneliness and and suffering and despair and death. So what's wrong with the world today? I am. I am. You are, we are what is wrong with the world. Because we have sinned, we have rebelled against our Creator. So what's the solution? Is there a solution? Is there hope? Well, there's only one solution. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we see this. Verse 21, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin, that is Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Or in the words of Colossians chapter 1, once you were alienated from God and enemies in your mind because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death reconciled by Christ's physical body 
through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. We, our, our sinfulness, that is the problem. But Jesus, his death on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin, that is the solution. That is the solution. That is the beginning of the God's fixing of this whole broken creation. That is where life beyond death, life beyond the brokenness of this world can be found. And we'll see much more of that in the later weeks. But how should we respond? How should we respond to this news that we are what is wrong with the world, that we all sin and rebel against our Creator? Well, I've kind of got three ways to think about it. How do I respond to sin in me? How do I respond to sin in you and others? And how do I respond to sin in the world? So how do I respond to sin in me? If you're sitting here this morning and for the, maybe for the first time or for the 500th time, you've been reminded again that you have rebelled against the God who created you, that you have shaken your fist at him, that you have taken him off the throne and put yourself there. If you've realised that for the first time or the 500th time, the response is the same. Come to Jesus. Give your sin to Jesus. Come to the cross where Jesus became sin for you where he died for your sin. Come and realise that he died in your place, taking your punishment, taking your death and receive the forgiveness that he offers. Be reconciled by his physical body through death and be presented wholly in God's sight without blame, without blemish, free of accusation. So the first place is to come to Jesus and offer the and receive the freedom from sin that he offers. Come with your sin and your guilt and your shame and hand it over to him and be forgiven. And then once you've done that, continue to put sin to death. Continue to root sin out of your life. Once you've been freed from slavery to sin, you can live out that freedom and live that freedom out and live for God and in obedience to his word. So continue to to root sin out of your life. But what about sin in others? What about sin in you? you? How should I I deal with the sin in you, in other people? Well, surely it's the same again. The first thing is to point them to Jesus. If they don't know him, they need to know him. Lead them to the cross where God's love was poured out. Point them to Jesus. Surely the brokenness of this world, it it, it must motivate us. It must drive us to see this world and those that we know and love to come and receive the forgiveness that is offered only in Jesus. And the second thing we need to do in responding to sin in others is that we need to forgive. We need to forgive. When we are sinned against, the other person Well, we're no better than they are. We are a sinful, broken person just like they are. We're no more righteous. We just know the forgiveness that comes through the blood of Jesus. And so we need to be able to forgive. I don't know whether there are people in your life that you actually just need to go, I'm going to forgive them. I need to show them the forgiveness that God has shown me in Jesus. I'm not going to harbour a grudge. 
I don't even need to seek justice because I know that there is justice in the cross. I'm not going to spread gossip or slander or seek revenge. I just need to forgive. Forgive like God has forgiven me. God didn't make you jump through hoops or bend over backwards or come on bended knee to forgive you. He took the first step by sending Jesus to die for you. Maybe you need to take that first step and forgive those who have hurt you. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that our our willingness to forgive others is actually a sign of whether we've been forgiven. Our willingness to forgive others is actually a sign that we're one of God's people, restored by the blood of Jesus. So maybe you need to go and call someone later on today or send them an email and, and, and say that you're sorry and say that you forgive them. Say that it's okay and point them to Jesus. But how do we respond to sin out there in the world? You know, as we look at our world around us, our society, it seems to be driving further and further away from God. Uh, it seems to be kind of rebelling harder and harder against the one who has given it life, the one who owns and made the world and everything in it. How do we respond to the world out there that seems so antagonistic to the God that we know and love? Well, I think the first reaction we need to have is we need to weep. We need to weep, not condemn. Our hearts are to ache, not our blood boil. We need to weep and share the good news of Jesus with the world around us, not preach morals and condemnation. Now, I'm not saying that the the, the word of God is not powerful and effective and that people don't need to be convicted of their sin. Surely any preaching of the gospel, sharing the good news of Jesus, will be honest about sin. But we don't preach morals. We share the gospel. In Luke chapter 19, when Jesus came to Jerusalem, he came to the city that should have been ready to receive him. He came to the city that, that really was him, his, as the king of the Jews. But instead of receiving Jesus, Jerusalem rejects Jesus. It rejects the word became flesh. It rejects the word through whom God made everything. And as Jesus stands outside Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19, what does he do? Well, the first thing he does is he weeps over the city. He weeps over its sin. He weeps over its rejection of God and he weeps over the destruction that is going to follow. Uh, this week I was, uh, we work in an office out in Petoni. I went and had some lunch. I was going for a bit of a walk after lunch. Uh, I was kind of walking along the Esplanade at Petoni. I was kind of looking across to Wellington, <coughs> as I usually do. There's a, it was a nice still day. Um, kind of looking across the harbour to the city. Uh, you see the tall buildings in the city and you see the, the suburbs kind of dotted all over the hills and around the harbour. And as I was looking, I began to weep. The reason I, weeped, I wept was because I forgot to take an antihistamine and because there was something in the air that was making my eyes kind of run and my nose run. And for a moment I thought, this is shocking. This is shocking. I ought to be weeping over this city for its sin, for its rejection of God. I ought to be weeping that in the greater Wellington region there's over 400,000 people 
who are enemies of God, the God that made them, who are enslaved to sin, who are trapped by the world, the devil and their own flesh. They are lost. Their only hope in this life is to reap the harvest of brokenness and sorrow and pain and toil and to die unless they come to know Jesus. And so as I looked at this city and my eyes were weeping because I kind of had pollen in my nose, I was abrupt. I should be weeping over this city for its lostness, for its rebellion, for its hostility to God. I mean, we, we as a church talk about being a church that loves Jesus and loves Wellington. I think, we're a, I think often we're a church that loves Jesus and loves being kind of part of a church of happy, friendly people who live in Wellington. I've been thinking really hard this week. You know, for a lot of us, Wellington is not our home. It's not where our family lives. It's not where we grew up. We don't know how long we're going to be here. It's kind of a bit of a transit lounge in life and no one loves transit lounges. You kind of make the most of the time you've got there but you don't, you don't make yourself at home. You don't put down roots. You don't really care what happens to the other people around you who are transiting through at the same time that you are there. But if we're to be God's people in this place, regardless of where we think we're going in the future, if we're to be God's people in this place, Surely we need to love Wellington enough to weep over its sin. Enough to be bold to point it to Jesus, the one who became sin, so they might be forgiven from their sin. What would it look like for us to actually be a church that loves the city around us? Not as a temporary home, while we kind of wait for the right circumstances to go back to where we've come from or a temporary home until our visa runs out and we have to go back to the country from which we came. But what would it look like for us to actually be a church that loves this city, that loves it enough to weep over its sin, that loves it enough to be willing to be inconvenienced so they might know the forgiveness that can only be found in Jesus. Have you come to Jesus with your sin? Are you willing to forgive those who've sinned against you? Do you weep? Do you weep for the sin of this city? Does the rebellion of this 400,000 creatures against their creator, does that cause you to weep? And then to preach, to preach not morals, but to preach the good news of Jesus. This is what it says in 2 Corinthians. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God was making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Will you pray with me?
our great God and Heavenly Father, you have been so kind to us. You have given us this world in which we live. You have given us life. You have given us so many good things in this creation that we enjoy, but yet, Lord, we, we are so aware that this world is not the way it should be. We have broken it by our sin, and Lord, we repent of our rebellion against you. We, we cling to Jesus for the forgiveness that he offers. And Lord, we pray that we might be people who are willing to forgive others, to point them to Jesus, the one who became sin for us. And Lord, we pray that as we're confronted by the sin and the brokenness of the world around us, that we might be willing to love this world enough to share the hope and the forgiveness and the joy that we find in Jesus, the one who is stronger, the one who has broken sin. And pray this in his name. Amen.